0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. Thank you, Pastor David and Pastor Mike, for the opportunity to share. You know, we look around our country and we realize that America and the world is in trouble. We see terrorism, we see families dividing, we see children being mistreated, and we're looking for answers. And so we've tried government programs and educational programs, but you and I know that those are not the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. Amen? And so as we go into our neighborhoods, and I think your Engage initiative is awesome because it's exactly what Jesus did. God's going to bless it in your life and what you do. But as we go there, uh, the question is, well, what do we say, and how do we engage, and how do we share the gospel, and how do we make an impact with our neighbors? Those are the questions that I was asking oh, 10, 15, 20 years ago when I had a ministry down in Fort Lauderdale. The community was very eclectic and very global and we had a pool and, and sidewalks and we would talk. And everybody, when they found out I was a minister, they, they really wanted to talk about religion. And so I, I met, my neighbors were Muslims and Jews and they were uh, Hindus and some were religious and others were secular and on and on and on. And I had this heart to share the gospel with them But as I interacted with them, there were barriers because everybody has been shaped by family, by parents, by dysfunction, by school, by pain and experiences. And we're this bundle of distortions. And the fact that many people that we meet have a distortion of God. And so this is one of the reasons that they don't want to Come to salvation. Why would somebody not want salvation? Well, it's because of the God, their distortion, and how they see God. And so, a big part of, I began to realize, a big part of my responsibility was to learn who they were and to be able to respond with answers, to be able to present to them through my life and through my words, present to them the true and living God that is reflected in Jesus Christ. Because everybody's got distortions, and they need to know who he is. And so I begin to ask God, Where's a, I wish I had this, this blueprint, this manual, to show me how to respond to all these different people and their barriers and their distortions and questions. And so God led me to the book of Acts. And I begin to see in Acts that Luke introduced me to his neighborhood. And I discovered that the neighbors in Luke's neighborhood lived in my neighborhood too. For example, in Acts chapter 3, we're introduced to the herding. Acts chapter 8, we're introduced to Simon, who was involved in the occult and spiritualism. Well, right across the street was a woman involved in, from Trinidad involved in voodoo. And then in Acts chapter 8, we meet this seeker. He travels, get this, he travels 200 miles one way just to worship God in the temple. I mean, he's seeking for God. He's looking for purpose in his life and meaning. And then Acts chapter 9, we meet uh, the fanatic, the religious fanatic Saul. I mean, Saul, we could say, is the original terrorist, right? I mean, he was dragging Christians out from their homes and confiscating and beating and killing. And then over in Acts chapter 10, I met the good person, Cornelius. I mean, if anybody could be saved by their good works, Cornelius could, because an angel comes and says, "I've God has seen your, your good works and heard your prayers, and we're going to send for Peter, and he's going to tell you something. Good works, good people, 60% of Americans today I believe that uh, salvation uh, judgment day is going to be like a teeter-totter. I put all my good deeds on one side and bad deeds on another. If the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then I get to go to heaven. Then we go over to Acts chapter 16. We meet Lydia, the successful. And she has her own distortions and questions and perspectives on life and God and others and self. And then we go down and we meet uh, Paul, he brings his abuser to Christ i mean this man beat him to a pulp he was bloody all over put him in stocks put him in a prison cell and there's this earthquake and and Paul stays behind because he knows that God is preparing this man to receive salvation how many people are abused and we hate the person that did that to us or to somebody else. Well, we learn how, with Paul, how to bring abusers, husbands and wives, and we how to bring them to Christ. Then we go to Acts 17. Who do we meet there in Athens? We meet skeptics. And Paul interacts with the skeptic. He has a completely different presentation, interaction, their questions and answers for the skeptic. Acts chapter 19, we see uh, the misinformed at Ephesus. He calls them disciples, and they've gathered to meet and study. And Paul's there, and something's strange, and, and he says, uh, have you ever received the Holy Spirit? And they said, Who's, we don't even know what that is. And, and so there's a lot, a lot of folks out there who are simply misinformed about God. And then we meet Felix in Acts 24, and Felix is the hedonist he's the pleasure seeker. And the Bible says Paul speaks for 2 years about righteousness and whenever the holy spirit begins to really convict Felix he says that's enough that's enough that's enough go back to your jail and then he pulls him back out and sees you know this yearning in the heart wanting something then resistance resisting the spirit. And so what I learned is as I look through the book of acts I begin to see these neighbors And they were my neighbors. And I discovered that everybody has, it's like bringing somebody to Christ, and I know people are just ready, and they respond, and and so on and so on, but mostly for me anyway, mostly for me, it's like peeling away layers of onions. There's a distortion here. There's a pain here. There's a, there's, and, answering questions, being able to answer questions, answering questions people want answers we call this the postmodern era and I guess we'll use the word postmodern until they come up with something else, actually it's existentialism where we create our own purpose and meaning in life, there's no God but the whole point is that we have to learn to respond to people where they're at and then once they see who God is, why would they want to reject salvation why? So the key is, when you go into your neighborhoods, the key is, is, is loving your neighbor, loving them, accepting them, embracing them, and then beginning to listen. And tonight we're going to talk about spiritual profiling. Listen, putting together what, they, what, they, what you hear, what you believe. Most people are a smorgasbord. I was talking to one guy, and I was listening to him at the gym. He said, oh, I'm a Christian. I said, well, that's great. That's really good. And I said, well, We kind of talked a little bit more, and he said, yeah, this reincarnation stuff is really good. (laughs) Ah, so over there, and yeah, and then he's got a little bit over here of Hinduism. He's got a little bit of this, and, and so, ah, so these are the things that I'm going to have to respond to in conversation. So tonight we're going to talk about spiritual profiling and distortions, because that's the issue. If they really knew who God was and how much he loved them. They would run to him, wouldn't they? There's a distortion. And who's done this? Well, go back to Genesis 3.15, what did Satan do with Adam and Eve? The thing to get them to distrust God is to redefine God. God, God, he, he can't be trusted. I mean, he doesn't want you to be happy. He's keeping you from that tree, that fruit. God, you can't trust him. He's, he doesn't want you to be wise. Because if you eat that, he knows that you'll be wise. He, doesn't, he sees you as competition. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's jealous. And you talk to people in your neighborhood, and that's what you want to listen to. Okay, how do they define God? That's the question. How do they define him? And then your classes here at church, uh, uh, they're going to equip you, I'm assuming, yeah, equip you to be able to give the answers. What are some questions that the hurting would have? Why, Why are the hurting? What would keep them away from God? The hurting. Why is God doing this to me? If there is a loving God, why is there so much pain out there? Why does God allow death? I have to have answers. But what I found is that they... Most people want simple answers. If you can give answers, ah, that's enough. But they're not going to come to Christ until you can give them a proper frame of God. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit about that. But this morning, I, I'm, I'm getting a little bit of feedback. Should I stand back here, or am I okay right here? Okay. What I want to do this morning is I want to go to the Book of Acts, chapter two, and this is this whole thing is about Acts, so. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. And so my question is so all right, what do I tell people once we begin to once we begin to get down to the brass tacks and kind of, you know, we've gotten beyond the the distortions and now in this relationship or friendship they, okay, what is this Jesus thing? Okay, tell me. What do I say? Well, in the book of Acts, it's all about apologetic evangelism. It's giving a defense. So if you're going to bring somebody to Christ, here's the issue. Jesus is Lord and Savior. That's the issue. That's the issue. You have to convince people, show them that Jesus is Lord and Savior. So, how do I do that? Well, that's what Acts 2, the message, the first message uh, for the church is all about. There are four proofs in Acts chapter 4. This is Peter's message. There are four proofs that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Evidence. People want evidence, want proof. And here it is. So I'm going to walk you through this morning these four proofs. And so once you kind of have the relationship and you kind of work through their questions and they get to the point where, yeah, okay, tell me about Jesus. This is what you can share. And then, of course, you've got your bands, and that's, the, that, that's going to be the, uh, the, the, the sealer there. I ought to bring them in. But, but, but before you get there, you need to deal with some stuff. Okay, so this is Pentecost, and uh, this is the launching of the church, and uh, uh, there's thousands of Jews here because of, of the Passover, and uh, there's this fireball that comes out of, out of the sky, and it's like a huge tornado, and, and it goes over this house, and everybody hears this wind, and they're running to the, probably Solomon's Colonnade, which is big enough to hold thousands and thousands of people. This fire goes into this house, and then it breaks up into 12 different tongues. What are, what are tongues? Communication, that's what we talk with. So God is about to talk to us. And so he goes down over the 12 apostles and, and they, they go out into this colonnade and, and I can see them interacting with each other, with the people in the crowd. And it says that when, when they talk to Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamia and Cappadocia, they're speaking their dialect. So supernaturally, God has given the apostles this ability to communicate the gospel cross-culturally. That's what tongues are in the New Testament. It's the supernatural ability to communicate in languages that people can understand. And so the people say, wait a minute, how is this that we can hear them speaking in our own dialect? These guys are Galileans. And then Peter stands up and he begins to explain that, that this is a, a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. Joel, seven 800 years before the birth of Christ If you got your Bibles, look at verse 17. He says, uh, in the last days, the last days. Now, I know the last days are right before Jesus comes, but we've been living in the last days technically ever since Jesus ascended. And so in the last days, he says he's going to pour out his spirit on all people. And then he says the bookend is in verse 20, and then he talks about the last days is going to end with judgment. And then he talks about the moon and the blood and... And so forth and so on. And there's going to be this judgment day. And everybody who had called on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. So he says, what you're seeing here, folks, you are privileged to be a part of this great launch that, that God announced in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to crush the head of the serpent with one born of a woman. And here's the plan. And this is the launch. And you're a part of it. This is something really, really big, really, really special. And then he launches in verse 22 in this message, this apologetic evangelism. And so he's going to give four proofs to this audience that Jesus is Lord and Savior you need to respond to him. Okay, verse 22. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among You, through him, just as you yourselves know. And I'll go ahead and read verse 23. (coughs) Excuse me. And he says that this Jesus was delivered up by God's predetermined plan, his foreknowledge. He knew that the Romans and he knew the Pharisees, given this opportunity, would put Jesus on the cross. It's a part of God's plan. He used even evil to accomplish the greatest work, redemptive work in history. God raised him up, and so forth and so on. But he starts off, and the first thing he says is, you know this Jesus. He was a man proven to you by miracles. We don't talk enough about the miracles of Jesus with our friends. There are hundreds and hundreds of of miracles of Jesus. John says in the the end of his, his gospel, he says, you know, if we wrote everything that he did down, there'd be volumes and volumes. Now, now, Elijah was a great prophet. He did miracles, and we see others doing miracles. But the G- miracles of Jesus are very, very important because they identify, they connect his identity not as a prophet of God, as the Muslims would say, but what Jesus says. And Muslims believe in the Gospels. They believe in Jesus but not as God in the flesh. And this Gospels is good to talk with Muslims about uh, as you interact with them. But when you notice the, the the miracles, it connects him to God in the flesh. Not a prophet of God, God in the flesh. And that's how we use the miracles of Jesus to connect him to show he is God. He is God. For example, when in Luke chapter five, I think it is, the the, the four buddies bring in their their, their friend who's who, who's who's paralyzed. Remember that story? And they can't get in, and so they tear off the roof and they put him down into the house. Remember that? And what is the first thing that Jesus says? The Pharisees and everybody's there, and they're watching Jesus really closely. What's the first thing that that Jesus says to that guy? That's right. Son, your sins are forgiven. Whoa! Whoa! The Pharisees are screaming, blasphemy, blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, yeah, you got it. You got it. And he wouldn't back, Jesus wouldn't back down. And that's why they began to make plans to stone him. You got it. And then he says to them, hey, what's easier? To forgive somebody's sins or to have him stand up and walk, okay, to show you that I can forgive sins and only God can forgive sins. He turns to the guy and says, okay, stand up and take your mat and get out of here. And the guy jumped up and he walks out. How about how about the miracle of, uh, in, in Matthew 14, um, he's been, Jesus has been praying in the mountains and the disciples go on the Sea of Galilee and they've been rowing for, I think, six hours or whatever And they're out there in the middle, and it's a storm, and Jesus walks out to them. And that's that's the story where Peter walks out on on the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's really good. But let's get to the good point. When they all get into the boat, what does it say they do? Everybody. What? They worship him. They worship him. Only God is worshiped. He received worship. He allowed people to worship him. Muhammad refused that. Confucius, Buddha, nobody, no prophet, no religious leader received worship. Jesus did. That's why C.S. Lewis gave his famous saying he was either a liar, Jesus is a liar, or he's crazy. Or he is who he says he is, God in the flesh, the Son of God. You see what I'm saying? See, see, it's connecting his identity as God in the flesh. So we need to talk about the stories. I was talking to my Muslim friend, and a great guy is a really neat guy. And uh, one day I just said, and, because you've got to have relationships. You've got to have relationships with your neighbors. You have to. And in a relationship, it's trust. You build trust. You can say anything in a relationship. So I said to him after several years, I said, hey, let me ask you a question. Yeah, what is it? I said, I've been thinking about this. You guys, you Muslims, say that that Muhammad did three miracles and that they do. He said, yeah. I said, now, you guys believe that Jesus is the prophet. You believe in the gospels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus did hundreds of miracles, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. Yeah, he did. I said, well, if Muhammad did three and Jesus did hundreds, doesn't that trump Muhammad? Because I had a relationship with him, he, he knew I wasn't out to hurt him or anything like that. He said, yeah. <laughs> he said, yeah, I never thought of that. And so in the relationship of showing God's love because the Muslims are about justice and justice and justice. That's why fights continue for 4,000 years. Nobody's willing to forgive and stop. That's Christianity. That's what led him to Christ. Amen? Yeah, that's what led him to Christ, but it's in these conversations. So number one, we need to talk about miracles and I need to move on here. I'm going to run out of time. Okay, number two is fulfilled prophecies. And that's in verse verse 25. And then he goes to the second proof. He says, For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. Look down at verse 27. Because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. Now this is out of the Psalms and this is a, a prophecy of the resurrection. But what I want to talk to you about is prophecies, Prophecies are the greatest proof that the Bible is true, that God is the author of the Bible, and that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's Lord and Savior. What do you mean? Well, there's hundreds of prophecies starting with Genesis 3.15, and they start with very, very broad, the proto Genesis 3.15. Then you go to the seed of Abraham, son of Isaac, Jacob, you know, the family line of Jesse, the house of David... And then you go, and he's going to be called prophet, priest, and king. And then he's going to start his, uh, he's going to be preceded by a messenger. He's going to be born of a virgin. Uh, uh, The children of Bethlehem are going to be killed. Um, He's going to start his ministry in Galilee. He's going to have a ministry of parables. He's going to teach with parables. He's going to do a lot, a lot of miracles. And it takes you right on down. His life is script. His life is script. I mean, the last final week of Jesus, there's about 30 prophecies. Read Matthew, you'll see, this is written, this is written, this is written, this is written. He did this to, you know, fulfillment. So that the Jews would see that he is the Messiah, embrace him, and then be the light of the Gentiles. And so you got all these prophecies that just script his life all the way down to 77 generations. God is just communicating this message and revealing new insights and new, new descriptions of who he is. Now, your friend is going to say, ah, yeah, that's really nice, but that, that could have been written after Jesus was born. Yeah, that's, that's how you explain all that. So what, what do you say? Real simple, you come back and say, no, 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 no. The Dead Sea Scrolls prove that these were written prior. Oh, what do you mean? Well, 47, 1947, 57, uh, they found all the Old Testament scrolls except for Esther. And by the way, they're 90, 99% accurate what we've got in the Old Testament. And they carbon dated, you know, the guys like science, they carbon dated all these scrolls. And the latest scroll was 200 years before the birth of Christ. So what does that tell you? What does it tell you? That these could not have been written after the fact. They were written prior. And so one person fulfilling all these prophecies over 1,500 years and so on and so on, different continents, different people, is like 10 to the 23rd power. Okay, number three, the Bali Resurrection. He says, uh, Brothers and sisters, I, ca- I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his body uh, and, and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in the Hades. Now he's explaining the, 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 the psalm passage there couldn't have been it couldn't have been him he was talking about david it had to be somebody else and said god verse 32 god has raised this jesus we are all witnesses of this fact and so proof number three is a body of resurrection how many witnesses did jesus appear to 40 days he appeared we've got 11 accounts uh, 11 accounts of of resurrection experiences and one of those resurrection experiences first corinthians 15 says he appeared to how many people all at once 500. 500 people at once. If you brought 500 people up here and gave a testimony in court regarding the validity of what they saw, 500 people cannot have the same hallucination. You know what I'm saying? 500 witnesses at once. And then you've got the life of the apostles who are willing. They, they, they all die. John is on the Isle of Patmos, but they're all, they all suffer and die for their testimony. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to die for a lie. And then Saul, his conversion, oh, that's a big one. Saul's conversion, he's a persecutor of the church, and now he becomes, could be, we can make an argument that he's one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, wrote 12, 13 books in the New Testament. He was a violent man, a persecutor. He hated the church. It's a great testimony God is alive. And besides, the, the, the Romans, they, they knew that he had talked about resurrection, and they sealed the tomb. They put a big stone in front of it. They had 16 Roman guards, four, uh, four ships, four each. The others were around, and then the four were walking back and forth, and if, they'd, if the body was stolen, they'd, they'd be killed. They'd be killed. And so it's pretty clear that his body wasn't stolen and, and that he, in fact, arose from the grave. Proof number four that Jesus is Lord and Savior is exaltation. And Peter says, therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promise He's poured out everything you've seen. And then he, then he gives... Is, uh, uh, he says, okay, and then they're convicted, and he tells them to repent, be baptized. And then 3,000 people, that's how the church starts. Isn't that awesome? Okay, so everybody tell me what the four, four proofs are as we kind of interact. Number one is what? Miracles. Number two is? Fulfilled prophecies. Number three is? Bodily resurrection. Number four is? He's reigning today, isn't he? Jesus is alive, isn't he? He's reigning today. He's here with us today. He's reigning, and he's in control. He's in control. He sits at the right hand of God. You know, uh, and I remember uh, a funeral. Somebody in the church came to me and said, would you do this funeral? Never forget this. Uh, (laughs) I didn't know the folks. They said, just go on up by the casket. There's two boys there. They'll tell you the story. So, what I do is I go to this funeral home. I go up and meet these, these two boys, and their friend had died. And I said, well, what happened? And they said, well, we were out on the Ohio River, and we were out there playing and so forth. We hit a log. We all fell into the water. We're not good swimmers. Terry's a great swimmer. We got half, uh, he got halfway to the Indiana side, and he looked back, and we were, we were, dra- we were ready to drown. So he swam back out, and he went underneath the water, and he would push us. He would push us from the bottom. He would push us all the way, all the way to the side. And then they said, we, he, we, he got us to the edge. There was a uh, there were ladder there, and he wanted us to go first. And we climbed up the ladder, and then we turned around, and, and there was a wh- whirlpool, and it sucked him under, and he, he died. And those guys just started bawling. I mean, they were just bawling. And one guy said, he died for me. I will never be the same. I will never be the same. And those guys talked about making their life count and and not wasting their time and living intentionally and living doing good things so that his sacrifice would not would not be wasted. And I thought to myself, "Oh my goodness, what a conviction in my heart. I mean, Jesus died for me. He saved me from hell and saved me to heaven. God, today I'm never going to be the same." Amen. I'm not going to waste this. What do I do? I'm going to begin to share this good news with others. I'm going to go into my neighborhood. And so tonight, we'll continue our conversation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be here and to just open your word and just talk and share and Father, you've laid upon our hearts friends and neighbors and family and children and parents that, 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 God, you want to hear the gospel. So we pray that you'll continue this cultivation in our life, and, uh, and Lord, through us, may we plant the seed and water the seed, and we know that you'll bring fruit in Jesus' name.